Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back going into the labyrinth again. Uh, this is going to be the second part of our series on the Minotaur for this October. I'm so excited because uh, in addition to talking more about the, the maze and the monster, today we're going to be interviewing a professor who specializes in the history of Minoan Crete. That's right. We're delighted to have uh, Nicoletta Momigliano, a professor of Aegean Studies at the University of Bristol on the show. Uh, she's the author of the new book, In Search of the Labyrinth, The Cultural Legacy of Minoan Crete, which is available now in paperback, hardback, and is an e-book. And it's a beautiful book, just loaded with, uh, with wonderful illustrations and photographs of, uh, you know, of the various motifs uh, that she discusses in the book. All right, so before we jump into our conversation, we should probably do a quick overview of Minoan Crete just to give you a little bit of background. Yeah, uh, you know, in our previous episode on the Minotaur, we touched a little bit on the fact that these are Greek myths concerning the Minoan civilization on the Isle of Crete. Um, but yeah, let's get a let's just lay a little groundwork for the interview to follow. So Crete is an island in the eastern Mediterranean, the fifth largest, in fact. It's part of what is now the nation of Greece. It's long, it's narrow, it's uh, largely mountainous. Today, it's a melting pot of European, Asian, and African cultures, and it's well positioned to bridge those cultures. Now, stone tools on Crete have been dated back 130,000 years, but true human settlements weren't found here until uh, it seems uh, like uh, 6500 BCE. Uh, But it was home to what is sometimes referred to as the first advanced European civilization. It was established by 3000 BCE, and by 2000 BCE, they were building palaces and exhibited a rich culture. They thrived till at least 1450 BCE uh, when they ended up entering into a period of decline. Okay, so in the Greek myth of Theseus and the Minotaur, we are getting a sort of exo-mythology, a depiction of a past once flourishing culture, but depicted from the outside by a different culture. And in a somewhat pejorative way, at least in in that particular story, right, that the idea that there's a monster there and that the Greek city-states like Athens would have to pay tribute to the monster in the palace on uh, in Minoan Crete. Yeah, and uh, and one of the big things we have to keep in mind is that yeah we're we're dealing with one ancient people's interpretations of another ancient people. Um, so we, while we refer to this Bronze Age civilization today as Minoan Crete, the name itself. Uh, here is referring to King Minos in Greek traditions. We simply don't know what the pre-Hellenistic inhabitants of this island called themselves. Some scholars, according to uh, Momiliano, believe that the second millennium BCE Egyptians knew them as the people of uh, Keftu. The Minoan distinction stems from the early 20th century. Uh, this was, du- was dubbed by Sir Arthur Evans, the famous uh, excavator of Gnosis, the, um, uh, the, the, the major city there uh, on what is, uh, what is now Crete. All right. So Arthur Evans, working on excavating this ancient structure at Knossos, uh, is is knowingly he's not suggesting that like the mythical king minos was actually the king who lived in this palace but saying well that is the the terminology that we already have applied to it in a mythological context so we might as well just use it to apply to the archaeological remains of this actual civilization 
Right. Yeah. And I think realizing that uh, sort of it adds the mystery of it all. Right. You know, into into the wonder again of of not just an ancient civilization, but one ancient civilization's interpretation of that which came before. Thinking about uh, ancient Greek myths pertaining to the the civilization of Minoan Crete uh, brings up a subject that we've talked about on the show before, but it's uh, the modern tendency to kind of compress all of ancient history together and not mm-hmm. realize how much time actually elapsed within what we call ancient history. Uh, like, for example, if you were Julius Caesar living in the you know the first century BC of the Roman Republic. The ancient parts of ancient Egypt were more ancient to him than ancient Rome is to us now. Like that much time had gone by. And so there were huge gaps of history in the ancient world, even. I mean, there were, there were that the ancient Greeks also could look back on mysterious, vanished ancient civilizations and not know any more about them necessarily than we know about a lot of ancient lost civilizations today. That's right. And so in some respects, uh, me personally, when I'm reading about all this and thinking about all this, it's like, you know, it's like a game of telephone across uh, the ages with different cultures interpreting different cultures. Uh, and, and I think stuff like uh, the, the particularly the, 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 the myth of the Minotaur is an, a perfect example of this as it uh, be, you know, begins as something to some extent rooted in this uh, part of the world and, and, and isolated around at least thoughts about Crete. And then it becomes this, this Greek thing. And then it, every time it is handled, every time it is retold, it becomes, uh, you know, it, it, it takes on particles of new cultures and new concerns and new people. Yeah, totally. Before we jump right into the interview here, just want to throw in a couple of notes. First of all, at around the 14-minute mark, you're going to hear a couple of Outlook pings. Uh, that's just part of doing uh, uh, remote recordings these days. But uh, don't worry. It's it's us, not you, and there'll only be a couple of them. It's not going to keep going throughout the interview. Uh, also, I want to point out that our guest, at around 25 minutes in, is going to mention Mason's marks. And uh, just to give you a little background, these are marks that were found on masonry, that are sort of a signature of uh, the individuals uh, that created the masonry work. Good to add that note because I did not know what Mason's marks were until, until we looked that up. Well, on that note, let's go ahead and jump into our interview with Professor Nicoletta Momiliano. Let's start with your book, In Search of the Labyrinth, The Cultural Legacy of Minoan Crete. Uh, where did the idea for the book come from and what did you set out to accomplish with it? Well, I have always been fascinated by the history of research in any one given subject. Uh, That is, I've always been fascinated by the complex relationship between past and present. I've always been interested in how a particular discipline has developed over the centuries. That is how theories, methods, research questions can change from one generation to another. And of course, the way in which scholarly research and agendas develop is related to our present, is related to what happens in the present. And for me, the Minoan past and the Minoan cultural legacy is not just what happened in the second and third millennium BC, that is the traditional chronology given to Minoan civilization. And 
also the Minoan legacy is not just, as I said, what happened in the second and third millennium BC and what possible material or iconographic, linguistic or even spiritual legacy may have been transmitted to us via Mycenaean Greece and then later via classical Greece. For me, what we now call Minoan Crete is the product of interpretations, reconstructions and complex entanglements between objects and ideas about them. And these ideas are influenced by the present. I also think that it's very important for scholars to try and understand how their own discipline, how their own subject is perceived beyond academia. And I think artistic and literary imaginations of Minoan Crete are good to think with. They may stimulate new ways of Uh, looking at ancient objects. Um, New imaginations can make me as a scholar appreciate what is significant or not about my discipline for the general public. And after all, it is the general public, the taxpayer, who funds my research. (laughs) And I think I have the duty to understand what fascinates, what interests the general public, not just me as a scholar. Now, in broad strokes, what does the treatment of Minoan civilization in Greek mythology reveal about Minoan Crete's place in ancient Greek culture? Well, in ancient uh, Greek culture, in Greek mythology, what we now call Minoan Crete appears as a really strange and contradictory place. Crete in Greek mythology is a land where immortal Zeus, who was also the father of King Minos, where Zeus was nurtured, but also where he died and where he was buried. Minoan Crete was also a land ruled by law-giving King Minos, who was a kind of Cretan Moses. And King Minos conversed with and was wisely guided by his father, Zeus. But Crete was also a land rife with extreme sexual desires, with adultery, bestiality, mostly involving women and bulls, pederasty, human sacrifice, magic, murder, and betrayal. So I would say the treatment of minor civilizations in Greek mythology reveals a rather ambivalent attitude by the Greeks towards this island and her past. This reminds me of some parallels with, say, the biblical view of the antediluvian time, the the, the time before the flood in the book of Genesis, which I think is simultaneously thought of as a time of greatness, but also a time of uh, sort of chaos and and, uh, immorality. Uh, Do you see any parallels there or am, am I running off the tracks here? Well, I th- why not? Um, I think, in a sense, it's, it's when people are trying to make sense of a very distant past of which they have very, very um, vague understanding and memories, they change it. Something gets lost in translation, in a sense. 
um, people are uh, trying to, they, they know that there was something that happened in a very, very distant past, but um, they've lost the full understanding of it. And so they try to explain it sometimes in ways that tell you more about their present than actually the past. All right, on that note, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with Nicoletta Momigliano. And we're back. In your book, you discuss how how even the ancient Greeks used fragments of Minoan material culture as a catalyst for further creativity. Could you give us an example and explain what that means? Yeah. Um, I can give you a very, very precise example, uh, which is provided by some Greek pottery, pottery of later periods, that was found at Knossos, um, pottery uh, that dates to the early, to the Greek early Iron Age, that is to the late 9th and um, 8th centuries BC. There is one pot in particular, a lid, that was found in a Minoan tomb, which a Minoan tomb that had been cleared and reused in the early Iron Age. And the early Iron Age pot is decorated with an octopus motif. And this motif is actually relatively rare in the early Iron Age, but of course it's one of the motifs that was quite common in Minoan Crete. And on this lid, the way in which the octopus is depicted, the position of the octopus's head uh, above the tentacles, the number of tentacles, which is eight, suggests that it's really derived from Minoan pottery of the so-called marine style, and not from later examples, for example, the Mycenaean period, where the position of the head is inverted, and sometimes the number of the tentacles is reduced. So, the decoration in this pot is inspired by my own models, but it's also something new because it's created in a new style, in the style of the early Iron Age. And there are also, I think, other aspects of my own material culture that acted as catalysts for further creativity. For example, the large ruins of the... Um, Palace of Knossos, and perhaps even some of the frescoes that uh, remained visible um, for a few generations or even centuries after uh, the palace was abandoned. The ruins were certainly quite visible even in later centuries, that we know for sure. But who created these buildings? What these buildings represented? were no longer part of living memory. People had forgotten all that. And yet people felt the need to provide some explanations of what these ruins represented. And so later Greeks created these wonderful, fantastic stories of monsters and labyrinths, of women having sex with bulls, powerful kings that were half divine and half human. It's actually, it's also related to what Joe was asking earlier, I think. Yeah, this is, this is very interesting because I think often when we think about ideological myths, the myths that are supposed to explain the origin of something, the most common thing people think of 
or uh, explaining natural phenomena, you know, yes. myths to explain yes. where the why the mountains are this way or where the lightning comes from. But there are also ideological myths to explain cultural artifacts of human civilization. Of course, and there are. I think there are explanations that relate to our physical world. You know, it's not whether it's natural phenomena or buildings. But this is the point I'm making is precisely that. It's that these things are no longer part of living memory. And that's one when people are trying to create stories about them, sometimes they tell us more about the present than really what happened in the past. <laughs> it's almost as if they were natural phenomena. It's almost as if they are a mountain range or something like that. Yes. Be well, I think people probably in the case of ruins, of buildings, they would recognize what they were. But sometimes they were so astounded by kinds of buildings that people were no longer able to produce in later centuries that sometimes they attributed their constructions to gods. For example, moving from Minoan Crete to other areas, but the walls of Troy... The, the walls of Troyes, of course, were built in the middle of the uh, early, middle, uh, second millennium BC. But the way in which they are described in the Homeric poems, 8th, 7th century BC, as if, if they had been built by gods. But of course, they were not built by gods. They were built by human people like you and me. But people had forgotten this and they were so astounding that they thought they explained them as being built by supernatural beings. And we've seen something similar in recent centuries as well, correct? Yes, to some extent. Um, since the rediscovery of Minoan Crete in the early 20th century, thanks to uh, the excavations of Sir Arthur Evans at Knossos and by other archaeologists at other sites, Writer and artists have been inspired by the material culture of Minoan Crete to create something new, from poems to ballet or paintings. And the French writer Paul Morin, in an article he wrote in the 1960s, used the term Cretomania to describe this phenomenon. Cretomania is, of course, a term similar to earlier terms and used to describe similar phenomena, such as Egyptomania, Grecomania, Hellenomania. So is ancient Cretomania comparable to our modern fascination and retellings of various historical settings and motifs? Like, I'm, I'm instantly thinking of, of modern Roman sagas or various Viking TV shows and the like. Uh, Yes, uh, again, to some extent, uh, Cretomania is above all a borrowing of minor elements to create something completely new. Um, and sometimes, though, minor elements are uh, also used uh, to give a more ancient, more archaic, a more Bronze Age look to later Greek dramas uh, that are set in what we now call the Bronze Age or heroic past of Greece. But Critomania is above all the use of minor elements to create something new, contemporary. Now, in discussing the Minotaur, we, of course, are discussing bulls. 
How did bulls factor into Minoan civilization, and how is this reflected in Greek myth? Well, bulls appear very, very frequently in Minoan representations, uh, especially from the mid to late second millennium BC. We find representations of bulls in frescoes, pottery, terracotta figurines, in tiny, tiny seal stones. Um, And particularly fascinating are the representations of bull leaping, that is, of human figures producing acrobatic somersaults over the back of charging bulls. But interestingly and contrastingly, depiction of minotaur images, that is of creatures that are half bull and half human, are actually very, very rare and relatively late in Minoan Crete. And also, we may wonder whether some of these representations may simply be very stylized um, representations of bull leaping, because they appear on tiny seal stones uh, or seal impressions. Um, and animal-human hybrids do exist in Minoan Crete, but it's also interesting to see that there is no prevalence of bulls necessarily, uh, because some of these human hybrid um, representations, including some of the early ones, tend to involve other animals, um, birds or goats, for example. So how exactly one got from Minoan bulls to later Greek representations of the Minotaur as a hybrid figure is not entirely clear. And I think this process must have been quite complex. And exactly what happened, I don't know. Is it possible to infer anything um, about the tone of how these images are presented in actual Minoan artwork. So the the depictions of bull leaping or of animal-human hybrids, including with bull parts or, as you mentioned, with birds or goats, does this convey a sense of, um, of fearfulness or terror the way the Minotaur would in Greek myth, or is the tone different? Does that make any sense? Well, as I said, it's... Um I, I don't. I think we have to decouple bull representations in Minoan Crete and later representations because really how we got from one to the other it's really complicated and I honestly don't know how this happened and whether there is a necessarily a direct link. Uh, some people have even suggested that the uh, Minotaurs in later Greece are not necessarily derived from Minoan Crete, but are derived from other Near Eastern civilizations, later civilizations. But the way in which bulls are uh, presented in Minoan Crete, do they show terror, I don't, well, certainly not all of them. Um, The contrary, some people um, describe the the acrobatics over bulls, like almost like a kind of dance over over bulls. It's uh, um, like a very interesting show a kind of relationship between human and animals. I wouldn't say they represent anything 
necessarily terror. I mean, there are some representations where you see human beings being gored by bulls, but other, many other representations is, uh, uh, is the human being who successfully produces these wonderful somersaults over the bull. So I wouldn't say it's necessarily terror. And the other hybrid figures, um, they are so small, um, uh, they're not part of large compositions, it would be difficult to say whether they have any fearful terror elements in them. I would say probably the answer to that is, again, my hunch is probably no. Uh, it simply shows an interest, a fascination in the animal world. Now, of course, the myths involve, uh, the Greek myths involve not only the, the Minotaur, but the labyrinth. Is there currently any archaeological evidence to support the existence of the Minoan labyrinth of Greek myth or some actual structure or complex that would have inspired it? I mean, yes and no, uh, in the sense that there is no building in Minoan Crete that can be described as a complicated maze that is a complicated system of paths or edges designed as a puzzle through which one has to find the way. No. But the ruins of Minoan palaces, especially the ruins of Knossos, um, can have uh, for us a kind of labyrinthine appearance. And also Sir Arthur Evans, the excavator of Knossos, presented the large structure that he excavated as the, the real Cretan labyrinth because he connected the word labyrinth with labris, which is a term used in later uh, Greek text to indicate the double axe. And he also suggested that labyrinth meant the house of the double axe because he noted that many mason's marks found at Knossos in very prominent locations had the shape of this object, had the shape of a double axe. But I should like to remark that the connection between the word labyrinth and labris appears to be much more tenuous than Evans suggested, because there are linguistic difficulties in relating the, these two words that have been pointed out by several philologists, by several linguists. And also, I'd like to remark that, yes, Mason's marks in the shape of a double axe do appear very frequently and perhaps most frequently at Knossos than at other Minoan sites, but they are not exclusive to Knossos. You can find them also at other Minoan sites. And also that there are other signs, other Mason's marks that are also very common at Knossos. Now, in addition to the Minotaur and the Labyrinth, the, of course, the other key um, part of these stories is, is King uh, Minos himself. Uh, behind the, you know, the fantastic and the monstrous uh, aspects of the particular character that, uh, that we find in Greek mythology, is there a true historic element to this king? Who knows? Perhaps. Possibly. But the issue who 
really ruled in Minoan Crete is very much debated. And perhaps we should bear in mind that when we talk of Minoan Crete, we speak of about two millennia. And it is very likely that the political systems, the social organizations, changed in these two millennia. Some scholars think that perhaps some form of royalty and perhaps even of Knossian supremacy um, may have existed in Crete, uh, especially in what archaeologists called the neo-palatial period, uh, that is from about 1700 to 1450 BC. But there are also many scholars who prefer to see Minoan Crete as ruled by women or by some kind of gender-balanced elite class, almost like a council or a corporation of men and women together, rather than a single ruler. But it's possible that for some part of uh, the history of Minoan Crete, for some periods, there may have been a supreme ruler whose memory might have inspired later stories about King Minos. All right. On that note, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with Nicoletta Momiliano. And we're back. Now, as for the the Minotaur, the mythic Minotaur itself, why do you think the Minotaur resonates so strongly in Western traditions? Do you think it reveals something about you know the broader human condition, or rather, are we inflating and building on something that would have had uh, you know f- far different, more specific associations for ancient peoples? Well. I think that at least for some ancient people, for some Greeks, the uh, story of the Minotaur had more specific association um, uh, because, in a sense, the uh, Greek myth related to King Minos, the Minotaur, and so on, could be seen almost like a morality tale, an example of a punishment inflicted by the gods because King Minos didn't uh, keep one of his promises to the gods. Um, But of course, the story of the Minotaur, like many, many other Greek uh, myths, um, Greek narratives, and not just Greek narratives, but also Near Eastern narratives, can and has been endlessly reimagined um, to address different aspects of the human condition at different times and in different periods. And there are some fascinating examples of really different imaginations and different symbolism um, of the encounter, for example, between Theseus and the Minotaur. And you can find many examples in literature or in the visual and performing arts, uh, from the last novel by André Gide, uh, Césaire. Just the encounter is almost like an encounter between uh, the individual and his own sexuality. There are other encounters uh, in uh, uh, works by Picasso, in works by the Greek 
famous Greek author Nikos Kazantzakis, in which the encounter between Theseus and the Minotaur is almost like an encounter between an older civilization and the Minoan civilization and the Greek civilization, um, and so on. So the symbolism changes all the time, and there are so many different examples. So, it, of course, it is because it relates to. Um, different aspects of the human condition. I said, whether it's seen as a symbolism of one's sexuality uh, to the animal elements in human beings, almost like a struggle between different impulses. So it can be reimagined and reinvented with different meanings all the time. Now, in your book, you, you, you mentioned various examples of artistic performance or literary works that are, you know, based in some part on the, the Minotaur myth or Minoan Crete. Do you, do you have a personal favorite? Now, this is really the most difficult question for me <laughs> to answer because you really put me on the spot here because I have so many favorites. It's, mm-hmm. I, it's very difficult for me to choose. Because also it's so many different materials, as you said, for performance, literary works, and so on. In the visual arts, probably my favorite work, inspired by the material culture of Minoan Crete, is Paul Klee's sketch titled The Snake Goddess and Her Enemy, that he created in 1940. But I also love um, one of the sketches made by Marc Chagall. Uh, one is an irreverent take uh, on a famous Minoan fresco of bull leaping. And I also like some of the paintings by a local Cretan uh, painter, uh, the one who actually uh, produced the cover, the the illustration for the cover of of my book, uh, Rousseto's Panagiotakis. He has a very, very sexy minotaur. um, And and I like it very much. It reminds me of uh, Salvatore Dali's surrealistic paintings. And in the performing arts, I have a very, very soft spot for the gigantic snake goddess that appears in the opera uh, Minotaur by the British composer, a contemporary British composer, Sir Harrison Birtwistle. And I also have a soft spot for the ballet La Premidi d'Enfone, uh, which was perfor- first performed in 1912 in Paris and was choreographed by the famous dancer Baslav Nijinsky. And the costumes were created by Leon Baxt, and the costumes have uh, some Minoan elements. And among literary works, I like um, a poem written by Cecily Lewis and titled Statuette, Late Minoan, which was written around 1947. And again, is also inspired by the famous snake goddess from Knossos. And I love the story, the short story, The Ivory Acrobat, by the American writer Don DeLillo. <laughs> and uh, the ivory acrobat is named after another 
the famous fine, uh, discovery from Knossos. And I also like Don DeLillo's novel, The Names, which has plenty of references to Minoan Crete. So recently on the show, in considering a couple of different Greek myths that feature a monster, one is the myth of uh, Perseus and Medusa, yeah. and the other is uh, Theseus and the Minotaur, in reading both of them, I find, as a modern reader, I feel a lot of sympathy for the monster, yes. <laughs> for, for Medusa and for the Minotaur. Yes. It, it seems uh, it seems very unfair to them what happens to them, almost like they're not even really the aggressor of the story, that the hero is kind of the aggressor of the story in both the case of uh, Perseus and, and Theseus. So it, is, is that way of reading the story completely alien to the context in which they originated? Is that just our modern way of interpreting a story where, you know, the, the peoples who originally told and heard these stories probably would not have felt such sympathies? Or is that element of kind of pity and unfairness there even in the ancient understanding of these myths? I honestly don't know, because uh, certainly some a lot of modern reimaginations of the myth of Theseus and the Minotaur that I've come across when working on my book, uh, sympathize with the Minotaur uh, completely. Um, for example, in Gide, the Minotaur is not a monster at all. It's a beautiful young man. Uh, again, in Sir Harrison Bertwistle's opera, The Minotaur, the sympathy is with the Minotaur, not with the other people at all. Um, to say, I mean, to say that nobody in antiquity ever felt something like this would be, I think, unfair and unjust. There might have been some people in antiquity who may have felt some sympathy for the monsters. Well, I can't exclude this a priori. I would have probably thought that the majority of the people didn't, but why not? <laughs> I mean, it's... I mean, it's like saying that everybody, every modern person now feels sympathy with the Minotaur. Perhaps many people do nowadays, but not everybody might do. So why should we treat the people who lived in antiquity as a complete single block? Different people may have reacted in different ways to these stories. Somebody a bit original might have felt sympathy for the Minotaur. Why not? <laughs> and some people even thought that the Minotaur was not an animal at all. Even in antiquities, there are lots of different explanations and different views. So I would not want to say a priori that nobody in antiquity felt sympathy with the Minotaur, although it strikes me as perhaps a kind of sensibility and sen uh, that it's a bit more modern. But ancients could be very modern too, <laughs> in their feelings, in their feelings, in their in the way in which they uh, present things that are not necessarily black and white. Although this strays quite a lot from Minoan Crete, this has more to do with <laughs> right. uh, later periods with Greek mythology. So it's uh, it's Halloween season for many of our listeners. Um, so we're wondering if you could recommend any particular suitable Minotaur-related works for the Halloween season. Um, like you, you mentioned so many different things. For instance, I noticed that you mentioned a Minotaur book by Russian author Victor Pelvin, yes. um, who I, I 
read his, and really enjoyed his novel, The Sacred Book of the Werewolf, many years ago. And I just hadn't been keeping, I hadn't really kept up with what other uh, other things he he'd written. But you you point out that that he he wrote a, a Minotaur uh, based work as well. Yeah. Yes. Well, to be perfectly honest, I can't think of. Um, something that is particularly spooky that is <laughs> in the spirit uh, suitable uh, to halloween um but many reimaginations of the myth of the minotaur can be a bit unnerving and disturbing um and indeed i would say the book by Victor Pelevin that you have just referred to, which was published in English with the title The Helmet of Horrors. I think it's a bit of an unnerving story because it reimagines the labyrinth of Minos as a very modern internet chat room. (laughs) That sounds good. This has been fantastic. Thank you so much for talking to us today. Thank you so much. All right. Well, there you have it. Uh, thanks once again so much to Professor Nicoletta Momiliano, again, author of In Search of the Labyrinth, The Cultural Legacy of Minoan Crete. It's out now. You can find it. It, it, uh, you know, it just came out. It's available in paperback, hardback, and as an ebook. In the meantime, if you would like to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, such as our, our previous episode of the Minotaur on the Minotaur, or if you want to look out for our next episode that is going to deal a little bit more with the Minotaur. We can't uh, then, stop. <laughs> yeah, we can't stop. We're lost in the labyrinth. Um, if you want to check any of that out, you can find our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Wherever that happens to be, we just ask that you rate, review, and subscribe. Uh, but you can find us at StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That'll shoot you over to the iHeart page for our podcast and if you go there i think there's a link for a store you can check that out there are some t-shirts some logos some stickers etc including a few that are mythological in nature huge thanks as always to our excellent audio producer seth nicholas johnson if you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello you can email us at contact at stuff to blow your mind.com Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.